I took her up on tow at Jean, got off at 3K, turned right, started to show her speed control, you know, just bring the nose down and we're going to pick up speed and you notice as the nose comes up, the speed drops off and everything. And I trimmed it up so that then we didn't really need to do anything and I was showing her that uh, we don't really have to guide the plane around so much, it, it's very well balanced. And at about that time I heard a bang and looked up and I saw the tow plane above me. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you for joining us for another exciting soaring journey. While I've been here in the studio, our producer, Mitch, he's been out searching for more great content for you. On the road, checking out some soaring sites in the southwest here in the United States. One of those places he recently traveled to was Las Vegas Valley Soaring. Now, he had the opportunity to chat with Jay McDaniel and find out what it's like soaring in that part of the world, as well as hearing some crazy stories and personal experiences Jay shared with him that include Area 51, UFOs, mid-air collisions, and potato guns. And stick around after our interview. We do have a brand new segment from Sergio the Soaring Master, and this one is about bounced landings. Aerox, the number one in portable and engineered aviation oxygen systems, your source for FAA-approved oxygen masks and portable oxygen systems, and now introducing the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag portable oxygen system. Small, lightweight, and simple to use, the Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. So remember, our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. Jay McDaniel, welcome to Soaring the Sky podcast. Uh, glad to have you on today. Glad to be here. So we'll start with kind of our usual intro bit. Maybe just have you give us a little bit of a, an aviation bio on yourself, and it doesn't have to be limited to gliders. It's kind of how you got into aviation uh, you know, how old were you and sort of what paths you went up or down and when did gliders and soaring come into your, to your world and, and all that stuff. Okay. Well, I was born into aviation. My dad was a Marine pilot. So I was in a Marine Corps family, my whole early life. He got his first training at Pensacola Naval Avi Naval Air Station in uh, 1940, just before the war and, and went on to had a good career in that. So I lived with it all the time. I, I, it didn't really grab me as something I wanted to do. I, I, I built models as a kid. I, I didn't do the RC stuff and go any further. But one day uh, in between college semesters, my dad said, uh, hey, would you be interested in getting a pilot license if I paid for it? And I went, okay, I could try that. So I went off and got a, a power uh, rating, a single engine land November 1972, and got my whole 50 hours, and and it stopped there because I couldn't afford to continue, and I knew I had to continue to be safe. So this was while I was in Air Force ROTC, so I was went on into the Air Force in computers. You know, a bunch of us were always joking that, you know, one day we'll go down to South Carolina and we'll do that, that soaring add-on some weekend, and not knowing what we're talking about, of course. But... Mm -hmm. 
many years later, 1984-ish, I, I was at work and a guy had a hat on that said SSA and soaring. And I said, oh, I've always wanted to do that. Do you do that around here? And this was in the Las Vegas area. And he said, yeah, but this is January. It's not so good. Why don't you come out later? So I went out in June of 1984 to Gene, Nevada, and it was a dirt strip out there. It was one of those extension strips that the Air Force practiced on back in the day. And for our non-U.S. listeners, the Gene is relatively close to, to Las Vegas, right? Yeah, it's about 20 miles south on the interstate that heads towards California. And it's about okay. 12 miles from the California border there. So it's, it's relatively convenient. Um, okay. First flight went up with the guy and we climbed from 2,800 feet on the ground to 10,000 feet over. So it's like, oh, that hook was sunk, sunk deep in my throat at that point. So I uh, continued with lessons, got my private glider rating in November 85, had fun learning the area. Uh, this was all in Schweitzer 233, uh, got some 126 mm -hmm. time. Uh, about that time, one of our club members was sent overseas and he left behind his LaBelle 201 on leaseback to the club. So after I got at least 100 hours or more and the local uh, instructors thought I was capable, I got turned loose in the club LaBelle. And oh boy, I loved that. That was a, that was a blast. That was a different... Yeah, and LaBelle's I, are really, uh, really, really fun. Those are cool little gliders. It was. And in fact, I end up, ended up buying one in 97, January 97, found one and had it from 22 years on my own and really enjoyed that. Got my CFIG in 2001, January, and okay. didn't do a lot of cross country. I, I did did the, you know, silver and gold distances and, and those those challenges got the two diamonds but i never got the altitude diamond i you know i live that in nevada where minden is and i've been to real close to eighteen thousand, which is our limit for uh mm -hmm. not being in in controlled airspace but uh just mm -hmm. did not get the opportunity to do that and that's okay i felt comfortable with doing all that i spent once i started instructing i got hooked in that and really enjoyed that turning on people to soaring mm -hmm. and, and giving kids rides and that part kind of hooked me. And, and actually just about half of my, all my time is instructing right now. So that's fantastic. That's, that's about fantastic. my quick history. All right. Well, one of the things we've been wanting to do on the show here for a little while is, um, is try to do some episodes that focus on um, a single glider port and, or some of the pilots that fly out of these places. And if it happens to be a glider port that people aren't necessarily familiar with or heard of, that's all the better. And that's kind of the whole point of, of why we're doing this. And so today, obviously, we're talking about Las Vegas Valley soaring, which surprisingly, even some people, myself included, as of very recently, weren't even really aware of for whatever reasons. And, uh, you know, just hoping you just give us a brief history of the, of the club and where it's at now and sort of what goals and missions you guys have for the next couple of years and, and all that type of stuff. And then we can dig into a little bit of just some specifics of the place itself, you know, operationally and, and weather and all that. But um, maybe just, yeah, first kind of to start us with the, it's sort of the club side. Okay. 
When I uh, started flying a Gene in the in the mid '80s, it was a commercial operation. It was uh, called K and M Soaring. The K was some doctor, and I forget his name, but the M was Phil Mortensen, and they. I think we're operating out of Henderson Executive, which was not Henderson Executive. I think it was Sky Ranch or something at this, something like that. So it was a commercial operation. We paid for the the gliders, the 233. They had a, I think a Blanick L13 at the time and 126s. So I got my instruction that way. I left that area due to the Air Force, and uh, that was in 1988. And at my new location, I got a letter from somebody that was starting up a club. And in the Las Vegas area, from some of these people, there was another operation over at Boulder City, and uh, some folks over there, and they decided to maybe merge these two glider operations at, in a single mm-hmm. location at Gene. And I believe they bought the the two thirty three from from the Boulder City operation, and that was the same two thirty three that I had flown in after that, and then have flown in just last week. So it's been around for a good time. But so the club started in 1988 and it was the Las Vegas Valley Soaring Association. Um, a good group of uh, uh-huh. pilots back then. Ralph Beesmeyer, Tracy Carlson, Jim Dingus, Jim Madsen, some some great leadership uh, at that time. And it was quiet mm-hmm. down there at Jane. It was just a dirt strip. Uh, we could, we were sort of situated in the middle of the, of the field. We could launch in either direction. It was probably 4,000 feet long, something like that. I don't recall exactly. Mm-hmm. I know that, that today it's 4,600 feet long paved, but that's different. And then in 1998, Clark County here in Las Vegas area uh, got some federal funding and the county put together what they called a, an, a sport aviation airport. And they were going to get bring uh, skydivers in and aerobatics and things like that and, and kind of get those kind of operations out of the other airports in the area and put a bunch of money into it. We, they paved the, the main uh, runway, uh, like I said, 4,600 feet long, put mm-hmm. in a second runway. We had input into the design of the field from the club, and they gave us a second runway to the east of that. Uh, we wanted to label it as gliders only, but they didn't think that was a good idea. But we did get a lot of... Uh, concessions, the east runway has no runway lights on it. So, you know, low wings can go zipping along there, no problem. And it's it's 60 feet wide, which is okay for, you know, most colliders. But because there's no lights on it, it's, it's very safe. We have a lot of flat gravel area between the runway and the, and the, the western taxiways also, or the eastern taxiways, excuse mm-hmm. me. And I think I've landed on a good number of square feet of that because it's just fun to turn around and oops, I'm going to go land that way. If the crosswind comes up, I don't have to, you know, worry about it. Right. Right. And it's it's sort of an in between crosswind strip or something. Exactly. And it's always fun to, you know, make a student start thinking about things is we're not going to land on the runway right now. We're going to met, you know, that run, excuse me, the crosswind right now is such that, Let's imagine a runway parallel to that crosswind, and we're going to set up a pattern, and et cetera. So anyway, we've got a lot of flexibility mm-hmm. at that airport. I think it's very mm-hmm. safe. There's a lot of places to land. Yeah, and, and the uh, pavement's in beautiful condition. It's really yeah, it's it's, 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 it's nice really, really nice. We talked about grass at one point, but uh, realized that keeping that 
green with sprinkler heads yeah, would not be a good idea in this desert environment. Well, yeah, and your water bill would probably uh, probably be pretty uh, pretty high, I would imagine. Yeah, um, so, so that didn't um, So let's touch on just a couple other kind of particulars about, you know, about the airport and the area and all that kind of stuff. Maybe spend a minute about, talk about the, uh, the, the kind of unique airspace, at least unique relative, I mean, for European glider pilots, it's probably very simple, but, you know, relative to other West Coast clubs and stuff, you know, just okay. a little bit more going on there with the, with the Bravo shelf and, and all that. So one thing we like is we can, we can soar 12 months out of the year. And we have mostly thermals, but we have a ridge that's a mile to our east that we can fly on if the winds are right. And I have flown in wave up to 17.5 right over Gene. So mm -hmm. all this has to happen on a weekend. So it's, you know, not always, but we've had thermals in, in every month of the year. Yes, we're underneath the shelf of a class Bravo. We can get to... Uh, uh, 7,000 feet north of us and 8,000 feet to the edge of the shelf that's a, that goes about three miles south of us. And that's a new shelf, relatively speaking. I think four or five years ago that we did the airspace and me and another club mm -hmm. member sat in on all those meetings and hoped to convince them not to put it in. But uh, we got a couple little mm -hmm. concessions, but the FAA kind of knew what they wanted to do and, and the airliners needed what they needed. So it was a compromise. But it's not that bad on a good thermal day. You can get away from there. And then what's really more restrictive is the Class Bravo Aerospace around Las Vegas. And north of that, we have a huge amount of military airspace, totally restricted airspace. Mm -hmm. So other than, you know, yeah. sowing our lo local conditions, we can't escape for cross countries. Yeah, so you, you can't you can't just call up you know Vegas control and 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 get uh get access to like Area Fifty One and stuff. That they don't. No, I they don't like probably, that. They that's they like a twenty four like seven closed kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, but, you probably wouldn't want to land out there either. Um, <laughs> you know, it's been done, but uh, that's a whole nother story. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we can save that for story time. I'm I'm sure listeners oh, would be. Oh yeah, you know, very interesting. Um, there are routes around to the west of it, though, and we go up uh, over Mount Charleston and towards Beatty and up to Tonopah, and, and that's a great trip. There are landouts at least every 12 to 15 miles up that way, and, you know, we can brief people on that, and we can send the, the crews up that way, and there's a, mm -hmm. you know, main highway underneath it, and it's, it's a nice mm -hmm. route. It's kind of our only route. There's not much to the south. Mm -hmm. You get into some airspace issues there, and then you're against the wind. If you go towards the east more, you've got the Colorado River Basin. There's some gnarly areas out there, too. People do it, but it's just not as, as convenient. And it's as gettable. Uh, yeah, it's not as constant. Yeah. Uh, to go back to the weather, well, lift types and, and sort of weather and seasonality and, and whatnot. Um, so you had mentioned fairly consistent thermal you know, conditions year-round, of course, depending. Um, right. I'm sure they get blown out by, you know, high winds like desert places sure. do kind of all over the West. But one thing you didn't mention was convergence. Do you, do you guys ever get any convergence that sets up there or just not, nothing, not really so much? Nothing regular that I can uh, note. We do get some cloud streets over to the edges of the valley. The valley we're in mm -hmm. doesn't mark the, the, the thermals that well. If the, you know, the thermals are best once the temperatures start getting over 90 degrees. But 
prevailing southwest winds hits that ridge to the west or to the east of us and that's fun i mean uh it's not the same as going anywhere but you you know it's good training and uh we've got a windsock up on the top of that ridge it's 1500 feet above the field elevation and every year and a half or so we hike up and replace the windsock now that is kind of cool though you have a house kind of a house ridge um that actually can can work in prevailing conditions that's not um probably not all that common i remember remember one interview we did a while back about uh, what was the field in hawaii dillingham or something yes, like that yes. um where they would be able to you know basically yeah get up right onto uh right onto a ridge and go play around there right the hills over to the west of us actually line up and that's what can under the right conditions give us a bit of a wave and we have to kind of recognize it's possible and head that way it's it's not our normal towing direction but uh Mm-hmm. The day I went up in it, I, I looked up at the clouds and went, "That is, those are wave clouds. I'm going over okay. there. I told the tow pilot to go over there. I had oxygen in the lapel, and I climbed with yeah. a huge, your seat grin, on my, huge <laughs> grin on my face. And then it was like, oh, the sun is setting. I need to go back the other way. <laughs> <laughs> what are the winds doing on the ground on a day like that? Or are they just you know whipping? And They're probably at least 20 miles, 20 knots. Um uh, with about a 30 degree crosswind so it's 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 you can take off in it it's, it's not, not too, too bad. bad yeah no it's yeah. not like some of the other places they get really wicked stuff but yeah uh, yeah no wave is wave is definitely fun when it's when it's working and and the planets all line up right yes and then anybody that's kind of going somewhere they, they're typically just kind of heading heading north out of there for doing any cross-country stuff you had mentioned in our pre-interview about, I think there's a couple of special events that, that you guys do each year, um, sort of like a dry lake thing, and then something at, at uh, Tonopah. Right. Every summer so far, uh, this year it's uh, in, in July, I think the 10th through the 16th, uh, we take our tow plane up to the Tonopah airport up there, and uh, uh, club members are invited to come up and 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 do some advanced soaring uh because tonopah is north of the restricted air spaces and from there north there's some great ridge areas that uh for some good cross country you can get over to ely which is the home of thousand k's over there in the in the west here so mm-hmm. we we set that up as a event uh we invite any ssa members to come join us also that's something that the club will allow is any SSA member can come with their glider and get a tow from us as long as, uh, you know, they can show that they are part of a club that has the SSA uh, insurance policy. It's, it's, it's a no brainer. And that's part of why it was set up. So we have a good safari up there. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of, and fun. for our non us listeners, Tonopah is kind of a neat, big kind of military base back in the day. And it was, I guess, abandoned at some point and has kind of quite a bit of character to it. Yeah. It's, it's got, the the typical triangular shaped airfield with the three airstrips, you know, there like over in Lasham and, and a lot of the English sites, UK sites had that for, uh, mm-hmm. you know, taking off and whatever the winds are going to do, we're going to go train. B-24 mm-hmm. uh, test area, neat little museum in town there that shows some of the things that were happening. But it's been repaved and uh, actually used for one of the, mm-hmm. the U.S. national uh, competitions one year. Some things didn't work out, so uh, it 
people haven't gone back there. But it's it's one of those places that everybody has on their bucket list at some point to fly mm -hmm. out of that. Mm -hmm. so, and you, you, you guys do that in uh, what what month is that again? That's July. Oh, okay. So that's coming up. Uh, right. The 10th through that's the coming 16th up pretty soon this here. year. Yes, it is. The 10th through the 16th. Okay. Um, and, and so if anybody was interested in participating... They can contact me and I'll put them in contact with uh, Steve Payne, who's uh, organize. He's our club president. He's organizing it this year. Okay. Yeah, we've got a limit of 13 or 14 gliders yeah. and we're close to it now, but uh, you never know. People drop out too. Okay. Yeah, well, we'll slip something in the, the show notes or, or something like that. And then what was the other one? Oh, um, and then you do a, you do like a dry yeah, lake thing. Yeah, um, we schedule it for the third weekend in April and then the third weekend of October. And what we do is about six miles south of Gene, there's a big dry lake bed uh, called Roach Dry Lake. And we have a multi-year permit with the Bureau of Land Management to conduct an event out there. Uh, we'll arrow tow the gliders up halfway there and let them go land on the lake bed. And folks will come out there in their campers and RVs and spend the maybe go out Friday night and spend the night and uh, we'll do auto tows on uh, the Saturday. And it's about four mile long lake and we use 1800 feet of rope. Wow. We can get the 233 and a 126 up to over a thousand feet. No problem. And the glass gliders with the CG hooks can get even higher, but it's a lot of fun. Dry lake bed is a blast because if something happens, you get 360 degrees of runway to use and it's very flat. Yeah, and auto tow is something a little bit new for a bunch of people, I'd imagine, that, that haven't tried that before. It's probably kind of fun. Right. It's it's like a winch, only the it's a fixed length rope. So it's 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 pretty much the same techniques. It's a blast. I mean, the first time I did it, it is it is so unnatural to be in an aircraft pointed up forty five degrees and feel okay about that. It also seems unnatural at first to know that you pull back to go faster until you understand the mechanics of what's going on and the pressures of the rope like that. So, Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes, be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. And it's kind of a stupid question, but is there is there any for for somebody that shows up that that doesn't have any background with winch, or is there sort of like a ground checkout session with a with a CFI or, or any kind of sign off stuff required to do that? Yeah, we we take people in the two thirty three, and I know you know it's not a popular glider, but I mean we can do a lot of training in that, and we get people checked off if they haven't done it before. And mm -hmm. that's a lot of fun. Now, a couple of the requirements for the, making the weekend successful. Um, I think that the weekend you came down and hoped to go out there, it, it all went to craziness. Uh, we need a dry lake bed for one thing. We can't have rain the week before because that's just messy. And along with that, 
we want to not have any precipitation in the forecast. We didn't follow that rule before, and we had a, some hairy escapes out of there in the gliders at the last moment. We also want the winds to be less forecast to be less than 15 knots because the mm -hmm. blowing dust and that environment and the lake that just isn't fun. So that's, mm -hmm. unfortunately, we don't usually get the two weekends a year, but that's why we schedule two a year so that maybe we'll get a spring one or a fall one or something like that. So, Right, 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 right. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that sounds, um, that sounds super, uh, super cool when, you know, when the weather gods play nice anyway with, uh, you know, everybody being out there in a bunch of RVs and, yeah. um, you know, telling, telling stories around the oh, bonfires and, you know, right. potato guns and crazy trebuchet contests <laughs> and, you know, fun. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, so if um, someone, it, it, you know, in the U.S. or overseas wants to, to visit you guys or, you know, take a ride in a two-seater or rent a club glider or go for a flight, what, what, um, what options are available to folks and who do they contact and, and just kind of all that good stuff? Sure. Our primary trainer is a, is a Schweitzer 233. We have a 232 on leaseback. We have a Planic L23, very close to being airworthy again. And so those are our two-seaters. Um, our website has an excellent contact us page where you can fill in a form and explain what you want to do, when you want to do it. And when you submit that, that goes to the right people. It goes to the folks, that are, the instructors that may be instructing on those weekends or to the ride coordinator. We, we have a demo ride program for folks that may want to learn about soaring and take a demo ride and maybe get into the club. We don't, mm -hmm. we're not a commercial operation, so it's not a full ride program, but there's a button there that will send your information or help you get the information to our ride coordinator. And, uh, so that would be the, what I would request or, and recommend our website's very good. A lot of information out there, lvvsa.org. You can find that kind of stuff. And then, like I said, the contact us page is uh, where you would start with those. There's all the forms on there needed, the, the you know, the legal forms. And if you're interested in joining the club, we've got those kind of forms too. We have copies at the, at the clubhouse, but you can do it ahead of time too. Okay. Yeah. And I'm sure Chuck will throw the, uh, yeah, the website into the, to the show notes for those that are, that are interested. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So how about, yeah, sharing with our listeners one or two of your most memorable flights out of Gene, what made them special or memorable. Um, and that can be good, bad, scary, exciting, fun, sort of you know, anything and everything. Okay. I, I mean, I've had a couple of the, the normal, you know, exciting flights of soaring around with a hawk and having him show me where the thermals are. And, and then my silver distance in a 126 was, you know, I was scared crapless on that one because I wasn't sure where I was going to land out if it, if it didn't work. I mean, I'd done the preparation, but once you get away from the airfield, it's a little bit different. So I've got the, mm -hmm. you know, those kind of standard flights. I, I haven't done a lot of cross country, so I don't have some of the great stories. Uh, but by far, mm -hmm. 
I think the most memorable flight in in my flying history occurred on the 2nd of August in 2008. And I I pointed you to the PDF on that one, but I was taking a, a, a potential new student up in the 233. She had gone up in the Grove before, and so she wanted to take lessons, and we thought the 233 was better. So I took her up on tow at Jean, uh, got off at 3K, turned right, started to show her speed control, you know, just bring the nose down and we're going to pick up speed. And you notice as the nose comes up, the speed drops off and everything. And I trimmed it up so that then we didn't really need to do anything. And I was showing her that uh, we don't really have to guide the plane around so much. It's, it's very well balanced. And at about that time, I heard a bang and looked up. I saw the tow plane above me and obviously hmm. it, it had collided with our glider. My first impression wow. was, well, that was loud. That was scary, but it's sort of flying still. Um, what's going on? Mm-hmm. So tow pilot got in the air. He circled mm-hmm. around and says, uh, Jay, it looks like your tail's a little bit mangled. And you know, what a generic word that was. I didn't know what it was. Um, I did notice that it, I had to put in almost a 30 degree bank to keep flying in the direction I wanted to. So I figured something was going on back there. Um, and well, that's good that you, you were actually on the radio. I mean, there, even as of today, there's still, there's operations that, that have, um, you know, tow, tow planes that, you know, the driver doesn't even have a, oh, no. have a radio. So that's, that's, that's actually pretty, you know, pretty good to be able to, to get some real time feedback about what your, you know, what your your aircraft looks like after a, a midair like that. Yeah, that 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 helped a lot. I'm, I mean, it didn't tell me much. Uh, I headed back for a direct base leg, and like I said, I was we were gotten off at three k, um, and I I used some spoilers, and okay, that 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 part worked. That wasn't bad. But I was holding as much mm-hmm. rudder as I could to keep this semi-slip thing going to control my direction. And got it into a long base and turned to a final, touched down, rolled off into the gravel, and, and uh, was glad to be on the ground at that point. What had happened mm-hmm. was that the tow plane, he made his left turn, I made my right turn. We were completely opposite directions. He made a U-turn came back not realizing he had been in lift and got higher. And as the tow plane mm-hmm. came back towards me, he never saw me underneath the nose of the Pawnee and his uh, undercarriage smashed the vertical stabilizer on the 233. We were so, 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 so lucky, you know, no prop strike, no tow rope. Yeah. It's one of those things where inches start to matter, you know, a little higher, a little lower. Um, exactly. And as, and as right. I told you before, the uh, I wrote it up. We All three of us involved wrote up our point of view of it, and it was published in Soaring Magazine in August of 2009. So uh, we we took yeah, that as a... That was really interesting. That was our safety thing. But by far, that was my most memorable flight. And, and there were some good ones, too. But Yeah. Yeah, well, um, and, and but those, those kind of flights are... You know, they're important kind of learning moments. And I guess the, the bottom line in this case, and, and I'm sure it happens all sorts of ways with, you know, both ends of the tow rope. But in, in this particular case, it was um, a little bit more on the on the on the tow plane, you know, relative to his 
his he deviated a little bit from from his SOP, and then between that and just gaining all that altitude when he you know, he didn't really realize it, that's kind of that's kind of how it, it ended up. But um, but yeah, fantastic story. And we'll put a <clears throat> we'll put um, a link uh, for that uh, also in the show notes for anybody that wants to look at that kind of incident report. The two lessons we learned off of it, obviously, was uh, separate from the tow plane. But I turn to the right and I come back around a little bit to the left and I never take my eyes off of him. I want to know where he's gone before I get mm -hmm. busy with instructing. The other thing is the tow pilots, once once they release, they dive away and get lower for sure and away. And and we all learned quite a bit on that. You know, it seems obvious mm -hmm. to do now, but uh, it, uh, yeah. it was a little lazy that day, I believe. Yeah. And that, that happens, but it's also, yeah, we, we like to talk about this stuff and it's cool that, that you guys shared that in, uh, you know, in the article, because it's always helpful for people to learn from things that happen and, and just sticking with safety maybe for another minute or two. So apart from, um, this particular example, what about one or two other things? Cause you've, you've got quite a bit of time in CFI and maybe one or two things or little vignettes or whatever that you think are important for pilots or that, you know, often overlooked or ignored or not practiced well, whatever. Maybe another couple of things on safety before we move on. Well, something we, we've stressed uh, at the club a lot is don't rush things. Don't get in a position where, you know, you can be interrupted from your, from your pre-flight or uh, from your checklist. Checklists are important. You need, they're there for a reason. You need to go through each item on there and things can happen if something interrupts you and you skip one. So not rushing. And I think people talk about that everywhere, but it really does make a difference. And and mm -hmm. we tell everybody at the club, the launching kids and everybody, if you see something wrong, you can stop anything at any time. You know, we're not there to make money. This is not a race. We don't have to be totally efficient. You know, if something's not safe, unhook the glider, pull off the runway and sort it all out. So our safety yeah. comes before, you know, anything else. And, and like I said, we, we tell people that all the time. So I think checklists and don't rushing are my two uh, strongest recommendations. Okay. Yeah. And we hear that. We hear that quite a, quite a bit over, you know, these hundred plus episodes. So yeah, it's good, good advice. Okay, cool. So as we kind of turn onto downwind here, um, we're not quite on our base leg of the interview. We're getting there. Let's do a little mini lightning round thing. It doesn't have to be super lightning. So we'll just kind of rip through you know, just a few questions and then and see where that takes us. Okay. What's one or two things the that uh, people new to Las Vegas Valley soaring are surprised by or happy about when they get there and, and fly? I want to say the friendliness of the people, but that's only speaking for myself. But I think, you know, we, we try and stress that in the club, too. Like I said, the ridge is fun, and that's something that people don't see a lot of. I do remember one uh, visitor from Ontario, Canada, came and was excited to get up a little bit higher. And he said, you know, he'd been all the way up to 4,000 feet before, so he was hoping to do better than that. And I just, I smiled at him, and I said, I think we'll do better than that today. And when we topped out at 12,000, he was all grins. So, you know, the power of the heat of the thermal in Vegas, if you're coming from the East Coast, it can knock you around a bit. 
and and you're not used to that the strength of our you know it can be 10 12 knot thermals uh, well and, that's an eye opener and i know one of the things um when when i was up there maybe i saw it in passing but but there's a a, a pretty busy skydiving actually i think there's two operations over there right there are there that are. that operate on the other runway which is i don't you know maybe a couple hundred yards you know it's a parallel runway but they you know they're they're busy there's a lot of i mean it's every you know, probably every 10 minutes they're launching you know a plane full of uh and i guess it's mostly tourists doing tandem jumps and stuff like that but um but yeah that's yes. that's that's definitely it gets interesting and you're you're seeing you know orange parachutes in the sky you know sort of all over the all over the place but the way that you guys have the traffic structured i'm assuming you largely keep out of each other's way and maybe just a follow-up have there been any close scrapes with whether it's the actual you know jumpers themselves or their their powered aircraft um over the years or has it largely just been a a, a never you mind no the the jumpers are pretty good we coordinate with them and they're you know their tow planes are talking all the time. We know when they're dropping and things like that. They used to have a drop zone about six miles south of the field, and that was the only one they used. And they kept pushing and pushing to get the ability to land on the airfield. And they're at the far edge of the west edge of the airfield, so that keeps us away from keeps them away from us. Also, we're always looking. We're we're watching, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, knock on wood. So far, everything's been pretty cooperative. Are radios mandatory for everybody that flies out of out of the glider port? There. Yes. Yes. Uh, everybody in the club has one. Uh, all the club ships have one, or we have handhelds available. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, underneath the class Bravo. Right. Talk and point out our aircraft if we hear it. We we get transients coming through. We want to talk to them. Not that they always have the radio on, but uh, right. radio contact is uh, is a good thing. Yep, totally agree. And, you know, from a safety perspective, like I said before, there actually are, you know, places where it isn't required and um, some people don't use them. And I've always thought that uh, that's kind of crazy. And in this day and age, just seems pretty simple, whether it's a handheld or a, an installed radio. But, yeah, comms are are good because yeah people see things and call things out or they get in trouble or whatever so moving right along so vegas area is pretty pretty famous for its uh its warm days what's the hottest temperature that you can remember launching in and do you guys even do you have a cutoff where it's just like too hot and you, you just don't fly whether that's for density altitude and tow plane getting up or just people you know passing out or is that a thing there or it's it's just um it, it just isn't that big of a deal it's it's kind of a cumulative thing as the summer goes on it's just like oh my gosh this is another hot day on an individual day uh we try and launch early enough to get up in the air and then you know getting on those thermals and getting out of there is, is a good uh, incentive to thermal well mm-hmm. um i think it takes its most toll on the tow pilots because they're just going up and back down again. They don't get up into the cool air. Right. And some of the things that we talk about is for the ops guys is make sure the tow pilot has some water. Ask mm-hmm. him, you need some water. Can I run out some water? Things like that. Mm-hmm. Cause they take the brunt of that. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have any specific temperature numbers that we cut off ops, mm-hmm. but 
we keep an eye on each other. And, you know, like I said, if the tow pilot said, I'm, I'm done, you know, he, he can't start flying at, at eight in the morning and continue till eight at night. That's just not going to work. Yeah. We've got a shortage of tow pilots, so we can't have two shifts or anything like mm-hmm. that. So we've even called breaks, you know, I need a break right now mm-hmm. and it's hot and whatever. We try to minimize doing pattern toes in the summertime also, because that's just brutal for not only the tow pilot, but also, you know, the students and the instructors too. Yeah. That's, that's part of our environment. Uh, It's, it's, it's double-edged sword. Good. You know, the heat is what gives us thermals, but it takes a lot out of you. We make sure everybody's hydrated. That's a big thing. Yeah. Well, it's going to be pushing a hundred degrees at, uh, at the soaring Academy crystal on, uh, next Saturday planning to go up and, but, but yeah, the other side of that is you got tops of 15, 16,000, just a few miles from the airport. I mean, just over the airport itself, I think it's like 13 and a half. <laughs> so it's like 10,000 over, over the ground. So yeah, it's, uh, it's always, you know, hot on the ground. A lot of times means, you know, high in the, high in the sky kind of thing. So um, I think the forecast high for Saturday for us at Gene is a one eleven. <laughs> Yeah, well, but but hey, like like the locals there say, but it's a dry heat. that's or the you know people in Phoenix and you know too, I, I know, but it, I mean it's 119, but it's but it's you know it's dry heat. It's like well, actually, I was there in August where there was this monsoon business. I don't I don't remember it feeling totally dry, but uh, <laughs> right. So. Right. Um, Okay, so we're almost we're we're uh I think we've turned base now. In fact, I think we're might be getting close to our short final here. If you could only have one glider for the rest of your life, money or availability were not a concern, uh, what would you want to fly, and why? Or do you actually already own it? <laughs> no, I, I sold my my LaBelle uh, a couple of okay. years ago, okay. but if I were to go back, I would get another LaBelle. I don't, you know, I don't need to spend 200000 for, you know, a supercomputer and all that distance. I just like the simplicity and the joy of not worrying about so much of it. So I yeah, I, yeah. I would go back to a, a nice LaBelle 201. I might upgrade the, the panel a little bit and go up to Rex and get a, a nice uh, panel. Or something. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Uh, I don't, yeah. I don't have that need. I'm, I have more fun in a 126, and I think that's the best bang for money you can get in the soaring world is in a 126. So if I had yeah, to buy one, yeah. I probably wouldn't, but anyway. Got it. Okay. Sort of a related follow-on was due. So if you had a big bag of gold and you could only spend it on a on a trip to a glider port, um, not in the U.S., what would be on your bucket list and why? Uh, Omarama down in New Zealand has always been on my list. Uh, it just looks so beautiful down there, just the environment and the places you're soaring and the people. I still may do that someday, but uh, that's definitely the place. Yeah, and it sounds like um, from a few episodes ago, who was that? It was uh, Clemens from Chess in the Air was, was chatting with uh, Tim, the uh, Pure Glide guy, and it sounds like the that somebody took over that that operation and so it's it's back up and and going again um which is good so i think there was a little hiatus there but now it's it's sort of back in the back in play for for folks all right and our last uh kind of lightning round question um and yeah since you're in 
in Vegas and sort of Southern Nevada type area, just feel compelled to ask, but, um, do you have a, have you ever seen a UFO or do you have some crazy, uh, UFO story? Just, just I think I up. did, or I thought I did at the time. And here's what it was. I'd launched in the LaBelle out of Cal city over in the Southern California there. And I was, I had gotten some good altitude and I was traveling along the Sierras, maybe 12,000 feet, 13, I don't know. And looking up ahead in my scan, I saw this round, dark, circular object. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. What is it? And as the seconds went by, I realized it wasn't moving, which meant it was probably coming right at me. And I'm thinking, missile, you know, what, what's going on? And, and it was getting bigger <laughs> and bigger. And holy crap, it's getting too big. I, I, I swerved over to the right as, and looked as I passed by a happy birthday balloon. <laughs> right. I, I actually have I have one I have one of those too. But but okay. for those few but, seconds, you know, that was an unidentified object. That yeah. was a UFO. Yeah, I, I have um yeah, same 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 one out of uh out of crystal. I think I, I think I ran into a, a bunch of uh you know aluminum balloons or something. But but yeah, it did have me did have me thinking there for, for more than half a second. You know, but of course there's also a bunch of uh predator drones and all that all that sort of stuff yes. flying around um out there so you know you have your head on a swivel when you're um you know, especially in california we're, all, we're always adjacent and up up in nevada you're always adjacent to these uh you know restricted areas and um all these companies um out in the desert you know working on all these crazy things so Absolutely. Um, but uh all right well yeah you weren't abducted and uh or shot with a laser beam or anything. So that, that's, that's good. And, uh, all right. So that, that kind of wraps our, our lightning round piece. And, um, so yeah, so now we've turned final and kind of, we always wrap up the interview with, uh, letting folks give a shout out to, um, people in their, their sort of soaring lives, mentors, glider buddies, family, instructors, competitors, whatever the, the case may be. The whole sport is made with uh, some great pe people, and that's, you know, that's a good more than half of uh, why we do this because of the good people, the instructors that you know taught me, uh, Russ Buchanan, Ralph Beesmeyer, uh, Mort Mortensen, Tracy Carlson, Jim Dingus, Jim Mad Dog Madsen. These were guys early in my uh, development. And then uh, later on, of course. Uh, Cindy Brickner was probably the, the best mentor I ever had. She was, she's an awesome instructor. And if you ever get a chance to fly with her, you will learn more than you will ever realize you could learn and about different subjects and stuff, different aspects of soaring. She's awesome. And of course my wife, Robin, I've got a shout out to her too, because uh, she met me and this was all part of the deal and she went along with it. And I'm very, very lucky that she never, uh, fights me on any glider flying stuff. She's always there supporting, supporting me. And she even, she even let mm -hmm. me teach her how to fly gliders. And, and that was a challenge that took over <laughs> six years and, um, but it was fun. And there was write-ups in Soaring Magazine on those episodes too, but I'll stop at that. Uh, thank you, Robin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. 
two, two other people I just looked on my notes to that right now they're supporting this the soaring uh, society and that's Denise Layton and Alexa Owens down at Hobbs. Uh, without the work they do on a daily basis, uh, a lot of stuff in the background would not get done. So shout, big shout out to them too. All righty. With that, we've done our flare. We've, we've kind of landed. We're rolling out and ready to tie out the glider. So it was uh, great to have you on, on the pod and really appreciate your, uh, really appreciate your time. Okay. It's been fun. Our longtime sponsor of the show, the Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains. They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, Go to SoaringAcademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Soaring Master here. Today, we're going to talk about bounced landings and porpoising and ways to avoid it. Most of the situations which lead to porpoising or bounced landings are the result of unstable approaches. The landing itself is the culmination of a series of actions which start way before the glider touches the ground, like the choice of touchdown and aiming points, wind and terrain features assessment, and the landing pattern execution itself, with proper approach slope control and speed maintenance. Since we cannot just go around with a sailplane, the pilot must correct any deviation from his intended landing procedure straight away to avoid an echelon of wrong variables which can lead to porpoising or bounce landings, which unfortunately often result in loss of control or glider damage. A bounce landing is the result of a touchdown attitude that makes your sailplane contact the ground nose first. If you let it develop, you will set your sailplane off into a series of jumps and dives. And there are two primary causes of bounce landings. Landing hard and landing too fast. Landing hard can be caused by not maintaining a stable approach slope with large spoiler setting variations during final, or due to the execution of a landing flare too late and too low. Once the sailplane touches the ground nose first, the sailplane's reaction will be to rebound back into the air. The harder you land, the higher you will bounce. The other cause for a bounce landing to occur is touching down with a high speed. As the sailplane bounces back, the angle of attack increases, and since the tailplane response is slightly reduced with higher angles of attack, once the sailplane reacts and points downwards, lowering the angle of attack, your nose-down command results in a much greater response than what you originally expected. The sailplane then touches the ground hard again, and that's when the roller coaster ride starts, leading to a series of jumps and dives that often lead to sailplane damage. If you come in too fast, 
bleed off our speed during your flare to avoid this from happening. But how to react to a bounce landing? First thing, establish an attitude which prevents any future bounce. Close spotters and land ahead. Notice that the first thing to do is to establish an attitude, not an airspeed. The airspeed will naturally increase when you set up this new attitude and you close borders. But the main thing to re-establish is a good attitude which prevents you from bouncing back again. Porpoising, on the other hand, can develop from a normal approach attitude. It is often caused by misjudging where the ground is, forcing the aircraft onto the ground, or reducing stick pressure during landing, leading to a touchdown with a higher speed. And with the extra energy due to the higher speed, the sailplane will remain flying even with hard contacts with the ground, and the bouncing cycle will develop. Incorrectly judged flares during landing generally lead to porpoising, and cross-country pilots are subject to this when outlanding on uneven terrain. The right way to react to porpoising is very similar to a bounce landing. Once you rebound, put the nose on the horizon, close the spoilers and land ahead. As we previously discussed, bounce landings or porpoising are the result of a series of errors accumulated during the approach pattern. So here are some points of attention for you to avoid this situation to develop. First one is closely monitor any airspeed variation during the pattern and act accordingly. Second one, pick a touchdown point and do not lose it during the approach. This will guarantee a stable approach. Third point, prefer half-spoiler approach slopes. They are more stable and leave you with a lot of room to handle any updraft, downdraft, or to adjust the approach slope if needed be. And the fourth and last point of attention is during the outlandings. Thoroughly analyze the ground before committing to a field. Assess the field from absolutely every angle for you to assess the train slope. That's it, guys. See you in the next episode. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at SurreyMaster or check my website, SurreyMaster.com. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez. <laughs>